Genesis chapter 6, we're going to start last week. If you're in kid mode, did I dismiss kid mode? You can go on. Um, last week, we ended with such a great discussion, I hated to end on the discussion. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to continue the discussion if you would like. And I recognize you're probably not ready in, in this first moment to begin talking. So I'm going to just rehash a couple of things, and then we're going to see. If we don't have any conversation, we're going to move on. Uh, our conversation centered around the idea of what, what are the implications of God being able to change his mind. Uh, and it was one of the better conversations we've had in series like this. So uh, let me kind of lead up to it, and then let's just see if we want to take that anywhere further today. If not, we're going to move on to Noah, which is a precursor. We're shifting our attention, starting with Noah's and Noah's fall. Um, and that is actually setting up the next two chapters, which is incredibly important. We're going to be talking about not just what happens in kind of ancient, uh, light, ancient Hebrew life, but we're also going to be talking about where the, con- like the conflict in the Middle East stems from here. So, so Genesis 9, 10, and 11. Conflict in the Middle East stems from Genesis 9, 10, and 11. So it's, we're, we're going to be talking about that as long as some cautions, or as well as some cautions for us today. Um, and next week, we're primarily going to be focused on Nimrod. Uh, if you're not familiar with the story of Nimrod, it's a pretty incredible story. And then we're going to end on the Tower of Babel and the transition from that period of history to Abram, and who would become Abraham, uh, which is really some tremendous stuff. But I do invite you to be back next week. Uh, as In addition, we're going to be um, ordaining our two new elders, which we're very excited about. And I also want to let you know that the last Sunday of this month, March 29th, uh, Troy Brand, who's the pastor of Orchard Park Seventh-day Adventist, is going to be here uh, on his Sunday, uh, his day off. Um, because they worship on Saturday. He's going to be here. He's going to be preaching, and we're going to be having another table event that day. Uh, So we're going to do lunch again, and he will probably bring some members from his church. I would like for you to put on your calendar not to miss uh, next week or two weeks later, the last Sunday of the month. I would encourage you to be here. Those are going to be hugely important for our church, and I'm really excited for Troy to be here to preach. And then at the table, We're going to plan to have uh, a continuation of the discussion that we had with our friends from Kingdom Partners on race, and so we're going to do that at the table lunch after as well. So you'll want to be here. We'll get a a sign up so we know, make sure that we're covering all the food items. Uh, If some of you are really good vegan or vegetarian cooks, uh, uh, observant Seventh-day Adventist uh, is vegan. So uh, if you're a vegan cook, maybe plan to bring something that's vegan. And I don't just mean raw cauliflower. Um, but, you know, <laughs> dig out your good dishes, your good vegan dishes, okay? And let's, let's host them well. And you're going to love him as much as I do. I'm super excited he's going to be here. That's going to be Sunday, March 29th. All right? Okay, Genesis 6, 5 says this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is that good news that Scott was talking about. Uh, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry, strong word, that I have made them. And we talked about three weeks ago about the reality that most of our readings of this section of Scripture is that God was so mad that he was just going to wipe us off the face of the planet because that's what we deserved. That is often how people read this. And yet if we break it down to what he's saying, and especially if we look into the uh, original language in which it was written, it tells a bit of a different story of what God is intending to do in this time and in this place. Three huge words uh, that he's going to use are he regretted, he grieved, he was sorry. So that grief in which God experienced is after he's looking over everything that he had made good, it has now become corrupted. There was that tension, that need for tension to have restraint. There's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet they ate and corruption entered. Good creation 
began to enter uncreation and we began to descend into chaos and God looked over and he grieved. The word for grieved here is literally the Hebrew word atzab. And so two, I jumped ahead, two slides ahead. Atzab, which is similar to the pain that a woman has when giving birth. So as God is looking out and he is seeing all of this, it is, it is the image of a parent who is hurting, grieving, and is in birth pains. So it is an intense moment of God hurting as he looks out over those whom he loves. And so his grief is that of pain and hurt for us. So when we understand that grief, it changes a bit of God just being indifferent and mad that we didn't follow the rules. But instead, it is a God who looks down and sees, you have become something I never wanted you to become, and it grieves me. That is the image of what God is doing here. The next important word that our conversation kind of revolved around was the Hebrew word nasham, and that is that he was sorry. And this idea of sorrow is deep regret, and even to it is often translated in other places as repentance. God repented. And so that idea of repentance, which we kind of wore out in the last couple of weeks, so I don't want to spend a lot of time there, the idea is of God changing his mind, which is what repentance is for us. When we recognize sin is breaking us, it's, we're in captivity. As Paul says, you have been freed from sin. Don't submit yourself to that yoke again, that we need to change our mind. We need to change, make a turn in the way that we're living our life. We need to walk away from that and do away with that thing in our life, which some sins seem to be more difficult than others to truly turn and walk away from. The difference between God's repentance and our repentance is our repentance is a result of our transgression. But as we talked last week, it's important that God himself does not transgress. That God himself does not sin. If God can sin, then that changes everything. If God can sin, then why would we follow him? If God can sin, we cannot trust consistency or promise from God. Have we ever broken promises? Of course we have. If God can break his promise, that changes all of the gospel. And so his transgression, his repentance, and, and if that you push back a little of, of that, you, you should go and, and just do some research here because this word nasham is used 30 times in the Old Testament. 24 of them are of God. So we see God changing his mind. And this is what one of the things we talked about was this is not a problem for people in the Eastern world. People in the Eastern world, they do not have a problem with this. We have this issue with immutability. In other words, God can never change anything. And we kind of deal with that in different ways. Some deal with that in just saying, well, this was God's plan all along. God put the tree there and he just sat there and waited for them to sin because that's what God wanted to happen. Some people deal with immutability that way. God's omniscience. He knows all things. And there is a bit of a difference that as we begin to approach God's omniscience, we, we have to make some break between what God knows and what God causes to happen. I, I've, I've shared some stories about Josie, our, our dog, you know, who's still alive. So you, you just so you all know from my stories from last week, she is still alive and we're thankful for that. But if I put some food on the table next to her and walk away, I know what's going to happen, okay? Now, did I make her take the food? You can make an argument, but no, I did not make her take the food. Now, I'm only telling you the story because Malia's not in here, and this is a constant battle with Malia and her food. I will tell you that. So I don't want to, we're telling her, you cannot leave your food unguarded when she's in the room because she will eat it. But I don't make her eat that food Yet, I know if that food is there, she's going to eat it. Now, God is more omniscient than I am. I know that's a relief for you all to know that and to hear me say it. 
there is a chance that she wouldn't eat it. But I think all previous experience with her tells us she will. Now, God's omniscience is more overall encompassing than mine. And so he does, can absolutely know without making us do what he knows we will do. Now, you, that may f- seem like a, a very thin line. It's really not. But it is important that if God knows something, that God is still not going to transgress. And if we in the Western world are going to understand God's immutability, we have to understand it in the way those in the East would, and I don't mean Islamic. I mean believers in the East, those who come out of Jewish origin, do not have the same issue with immutability that we do. They recognize God has and does change His mind and that can create within us some a lot of anxiety and uncertainty and at times can truly change the way that we see God and it should it should change the way that we see God the things i shared with you about this is that when we live apart from God's design for us it does more than incite God's wrath but it breaks God's heart that's his grief and the question that I asked is why does the idea that God could change his mind bother us? And we had a rip-roaring discussion that we had to end because we were already running over. Now, I would like to open it up if you would like to continue that conversation. We will do that this morning. And if we're done, if we handled it, then we're going to move on. Any other issues that we want to bring up today? All right. We're good? Yeah, for real. Um, Pertaining to this. But yes, go ahead. You know how that one guy, like, the rock opened and it swallowed him into hell? Like, you know, okay, okay, okay. You know how sometimes God just smites people? He's just like, okay. Sometimes I worry that that's going to happen to me because I mess up every single day. And I'm like... You know, I don't know how many times I can keep messing up before God gives up on me. Mm-hmm. Which, like, I know, like, I would never say that to someone else. And, like, I know that His mercies are new every morning, but it's like, if He can If He really, if He's, if he's really serious, I know how messed up I am. Why doesn't He just knock me off? Yeah, all right, okay. So that's, so you're focusing more on the grieving part than the sorry part more on the heartbroken rather than the changing his mind and so i would just say this entire story speaks to the long-suffering grace of god all of genesis 1 through 11 speaks to the long-suffering grace of god and there is not a one of us in this room that has committed a sin more grievous than the next And therefore, if he was to spite us, or smite us, not spite, but smite us as a result, I would say God does not ever just smite someone. We use that language, but that means there's an incomplete story. Interestingly enough, we're going to talk about that because this story about Noah's fall fall, can fall into that category. Like, this feels very harsh and, and, and not warranted. Whereas God's smiting because of your sin, I'm going to just be done with you, would go against all of God's work that we read about in Scripture. So, our conviction, at times our shame, our guilt, at times can be an indication of maturity. Because the more that you understand the depth and the darkness of sin, the more your own sin becomes very serious in your own mind. Whereas if your own sin is not serious within your own mind, then you don't necessarily see it as that big of a deal or that big of a problem, which is the way most of the world sees sin. Why we just 
sweep bad behavior under the rug, under the, the rug of individuality and freedom and the ability to express yourself and all these things. We just sweep it all under that one rug because it's not that big a deal to us. Uh, I, every mature believer sees their sin as great. And that can lead you to one of two places, one healthy, one unhealthy. The unhealthy place is exactly where you're going. The unhealthy place is, I'm so bad, wow, God can't love me, he can't, he wouldn't have died for me. No, I'm bad, 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 bad. That's the unhealthy place it, it, it can go. The healthy place it should go is the place of worship and recognition of grace, compassion, and mercy. That's where it should take us is to the place of recognizing how great Christ's sacrifice was for us and thankfulness for that. Does that help in that regard? Maybe, maybe not. All right, we can talk about this. I'll meet up with you later. We'll talk about this after, all right? Okay. All right, any other thoughts on God changing his mind? Problem? Not a problem? We're all good with it. Everybody's good? Okay, all right. Well... Then let's move on. What I also shared that same day, which was God changing his mind, is that sometimes something has to end before something can start again. And that's exactly what's happening here with Noah. So let's jump to Genesis chapter 9. This is where we are today. And we're going to talk about the fall of Noah, but we're going to compare it so that we're not just talking about that. We're going to be comparing it with what Jesus does for us. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand. They are delivered. This is God starting again with Noah. So we have Adam and we have all of this that we've experienced with Adam. We have the descent into chaos. And then we have, but God saw Noah and Noah found favor in God's eyes. And God said, build an ark. I'm going to wipe everything off and I'm going to start over with you. So then we looked at that it took over a year from the process of being shut up in the ark and the rain begins to the time that the boat kind of docks and the rains, the water recedes and they come out of the ark. That's over a year. In which, the, in which they have done this. And Noah at this time is already over 600 years old. So doing pretty good for an old guy. And God continues. And we, we ended last week with Genesis 9, 1 and 2. And the reason that we ended with that is because we found Noah is given the exact same instructions that Adam was. God is starting something new. We look at Noah. Noah is in many ways the new Adam. All right. Here are some of the areas that we find Noah being the new Adam. Noah and Adam were the first men. In other words, Adam was the first that was created. Then everything was done away with and everything would begin with Noah. So Noah was now the top of the lineage chain for everyone. And Noah is the first man. We also know that he is God's image bearer, just as Adam was, just as we are. We are all still God's image bearers. He was called to fill the earth. He was given the task of managing all creation. And creation is tainted because of Adam and of Noah. That's where we're going to be ending up today. Noah is the new Adam. Genesis 9 verse 18 says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Now that's in some of your translations because of the way this story is about to unfold. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil. This is one of the similarities to Adam. He's working the ground. This is what Adam was supposed to do, was work the ground. This is what Noah was doing. He is working the ground, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, 
saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. Shall he be to his brothers? He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Now, this is a troubling story because it feels like Ham is getting a very bad end of this deal that Noah is the one who actually transgressed. And when we read this story, we read it, I read it, oftentimes with a little bit of frustration. Like, this seems, this seems very nitpicky. And yet the consequence is enormous based on how nitpicky it is. I will tell you, some scholars believe, some Hebrew scholars believe that this story is much more sinister than we read it to be. And I'm going to mention that. However, this is going on Hebrew tradition. This is our Jewish tradition now. This is not going on somewhat based on what Scripture says in Leviticus 20.17, and some of you are already going to start looking for that, um, is that what happened here was not simply him walked in on his drunk dad. That is not what some scholars believe. Now, what I want to start with is that Noah, while the new Adam, Noah is still the same Adam. I do not mean they are the same person. I mean, as far as the father of all creation outside of God, he has the same problems that Adam does. Noah sinned. His sin, to our knowledge, is him being drunk which is called a sin in Scripture. Noah's sin was revealed by his nakedness is the way that the story is typically understood. It was embarrassing. It was shameful. He got drunk, took all his clothes off, he's laying in the tent, and you're not supposed to be getting drunk in the first place. We're going to come back to that in a minute. What we find is that sin separated both of them from God. Now, Adam's is much easier to read into this because Adam's literally kicked out of the garden and he's and the curse. God gives a curse and it's going to be hard for you to work the, the, the soil. And, you know, life's going to be a lot harder and there's going to there are consequences for Eve. And, and so God is very open and then he casts them out. And then there's, a, 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 you know, an angel with a flaming sword. So you can't get back in to the Garden of Eden. We, we can see that separation with Adam very easily. Here's the interesting thing that we find about Noah is that we do not find from the moment he leaves the ark, God tells him to leave the ark, and God says, be fruitful and multiply. We do not again see or read that God speaks to Noah for the rest of his life. There is separation because sin brings separation between us and God. It always brings separation, and it did for Adam, it did for Noah, and it did for us. Now, this is important because if God was starting over with the hopes that we would then go and and not sin, it fails again. And this is where we struggle with the theology of God's omniscience and God's action. Why even allow, why not just wipe out Noah? Why even allow this? And that, that takes us back, for me, to God's grief not God's anger. There's a difference between God's grief and God's anger. God's grief says, I want more for you than this. And it hurts me that this is what you're going with. This is, it hurts me that this is the path you're taking. 
That's different from, I told you not to do that. Now I'm mad and you're in trouble. Which is how many of us understand God. I don't. Do I think I can get in trouble with God? Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. God has judged me as much as he's judged anyone else. And God has given me consequences as much as he's given anyone else's consequences for their sin. Yes. However, my fundamental understanding of God looking at me and my sin is not one of anger, but one of grief. And I take that based on God's love, God's mercy, and his grace and compassion. God grieves over our sin. He grieves over the choices that we make. He grieves over the reality that we choose an existence that is so, so much less than what he created us for. And he's going to be working for the rest of Scripture to restore us to that place. All of this is pre-law. This is pre-Moses. This is before God gives him the Ten Commandments. This is all before that. But God will be working through the law and then through the coming of Christ. We talked about the different covenants that we find through Scripture. There are five different covenants that God makes throughout Scripture. We talked about that last week. God makes a covenant and with this story beginning with the rainbow then I am never again going to do this. And yet God begins a process of redemption that we can have through him. So when we see this, sin is serious. You would expect us to say that sin is serious. A devout follower of Jesus recognizes that sin is serious. We do not sweep it under any rug we recognize that the, the most serious thing that happens is it separates us from God. And the, the best place we can be is with God. This is Adam walking in the garden with God, talking with God. This is God speaking to Noah. This is God coming down in the flesh through Christ. This is Jesus saying, follow me and you'll be with me forever in heaven. This is the Holy Spirit that indwells us so that as followers of Jesus, we literally have God within us. To be with God and to be close to God, that is the greatest thing we can have in life. And sin separates that. I recognize that the church has been very involved and taking God's role of judge. It's not the church's role to judge, it's God's role to judge. And so we like to sweep stuff under the rug of freedom. That doesn't change the reality that sin takes us away from God. We can sweep it under whatever rug we want to. It separates us from God. As a follower of Jesus, that is our primary concern. Noah's the same Adam. Sin is still separating both of them from God. And what we also see is that their sin brings chaos to their families. Adam and Eve with Cain and Abel. Noah with Ham, Shem, Japheth. We see this incredibly destructive movement within their family as a result of sin. The question is, whose sin is this? Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. Paul talks about alcohol in several places, about be careful of your use of alcohol. <laughs> Don't get drunk. This is one of the things growing up as a Southern Baptist. When I went to a Southern Baptist seminary, I had to sign a thing that would say I would never drink alcohol if I was, while I was in school, and so I had to commit to that, wouldn't drink alcohol. And, and it's, it's a big deal. You don't drink any alcohol whatsoever. And yet Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture doesn't say never drink alcohol. It does say kings shouldn't drink alcohol. <laughs> There's lots of interpretation of what that can mean, but it does say don't get drunk. Don't take too much, and you can take that anywhere. I, I shared with you before, I have never been drunk in my life. But I'm going to tell you, I do still struggle with excess. I see it in other, other parts of my body, right? <laughs> so I'm not innocent or blameless or apart from the ability to go too far and take too much. That's a part of all of us. It's moderation. It's again, we come back to this, this key idea that I think is just so important. The ability to restrain ourselves. 
was talking to my dad this weekend. We were talking about finances and stuff. And interestingly enough, now's a good time to invest. If you're interested in investing, everybody's scared. Stock market's going up and down. Everybody's afraid the corona is going to kill us all. And so now's actually a good time to invest. Interest rates are dropping. If you want to refinance your house or buy a house or something like that, now's a good time. It's cheaper now than other places, of course. Or we could all die. I don't know which it is. I mean, it could be either one, I guess, depending on which news you're listening to. Within finances, the ability to restrain yourself will very much determine your ability to enjoy your life. You think, oh, yeah, money's not that important. Okay, it's not. However, if you're in debt, life is not that great, is it? If it's manageable debt, maybe. But what if it's unmanageable? What if I can't live within my means? That's a miserable life. What about when you need to go make your next rent payment or your next house payment and you can't make it and you don't know where you'll go? The ability to restrain ourselves is, is massive as, a, as followers of Jesus, and it's also an indicator of maturity. So the most successful people in life are that way because they have learned the disciplines to restrain themselves. And when we see someone who's super successful and they clearly have no restraint, we watch for them to destroy themselves, don't we? Restraint is such a key part of living a mature life, a full life that I cannot emphasize enough how important the ability to maintain restraint is. Now, for each one of us in this room, God's calling us to some level of restraint in probably similar areas, but in some unique areas. Now, the church gets in trouble when I tell you what I want you to restrain yourself from. Because I'm not the one who imposes that. And yet we have, as leaders of the church, we've done that for as long as there's been a church. But you, as, as a follower of Jesus, with the Holy Spirit speaking within you, leading you, drawing you, telling you all the complexities of Scripture and how you are to apply that to your life is going to introduce to you disciplines. This is why, as parents, we introduce disciplines to our kids. No one wants to disappoint people. Well, I mean, I hope not. Some people, I think, do like it. That's not good. Sometimes we have to disappoint our kids And helping them to learn discipline. Because if they don't learn restraint, if you guys don't learn restraint, you're going to have a very hard life. Because there's no one except presidential candidates who will come and say, you do whatever you want and it will be fine. Because no one else says that. When the police knock on the door, you can't just say, well, listen, I'm free to do what I want. Please don't say, oh, well, that's a loophole. We didn't think that you would exercise. So we'll just have to go. Because your boss doesn't say, you know what, I know you're not showing up to work and instead you've wanted to watch this, you know, binge on this series and so you just couldn't make it into work and that's okay, we're going to pay you anyways. That's not how the world works. If you don't make payments, the bank doesn't say, you know what, you decided you wanted to do something else with your time and your money, so that's okay, we'll just... If you can pay something, pay whenever. That's not how the world works. We have to have disciplines and restraints within our lives. If we're going to get healthy, being healthy requires restraint. We have to restrain ourselves. The lack of restraint, Proverbs tells us, leads to chaos. And so I can't, I can't underestimate the importance of you exercising restraint or me exercising restraint in our life or the chaos that it brings when we do not. Let's jump back into our story. Because Noah's curse and blessing to his sons will set the tone for the development of the ancient Middle East to today. That sets the tone for everything that's happening. And these are, these are some of the things that whenever I read this, and I told you, Genesis 1 through 11, I'm fine whether it's a science or history book, and I'm fine if it's not. And yet, things like Genesis chapter 9 and 10 and 11, boy, sure explains where our world is today. And there are so many of those things that we read in these old chapters of the Old Testament in which it just for me gives credibility to this message. Even if there was a slight difference in how it actually all worked out, 
you know what? There is a lot that explains where we are today. As much as we change, we're still the same. We're still the same. All right? Was Noah too extreme? So Jewish and Hebrew scholars read this sin as very different. And I even hesitate to even lay this out for you. But I'm going to do it because I do think there's some biblical evidence that this could be true. Why is Ham getting the raw end of this deal? Why is actually Canaan is the one, Ham's son, getting the raw end of this? He's going to be enslaved. What we're going to find is that Canaan, Ham is eventually going to have a son a great-grandson by the name of Nimrod. And you may know Nimrod by just a, a way of, of making fun of people. There's a reason that that's the way that name kind of came around. Um, but it's actually a pretty salacious story about Nimrod. And, and we're going to borrow from our friend Josephus uh, when we talk about him next week. Because uh, the story of Nimrod is, oh, it is rich for us. But it, he is glossed over. Uh, throughout these next few chapters. Some would even say, because we're going to end on the Tower of Babel, that Nimrod is the one who led the effort to build the Tower of Babel. So Nimrod's an important guy. And it's important for you to see that, and and what we'll talk about, I'm kind of giving away some of next week's sermon, that Nimrod actually is driven by the very curse that Noah places on Ham, Canaan, and up through his lineage. Nimrod is driven by this curse. And then we see it's actually some catastrophic things for the world that Nimrod does. So this is severe. And we look at this story and we think, gosh, Noah, it's, you're, you're the one who should be cursed here, not Ham. I mean, he just walked in and watched and saw and like, whoa, this is bad. Told his brothers, well, he probably shouldn't have kept it to himself. But and then his other brothers, only thing they did was walk in and cover him up and leave. And yet, and here they, they get the keys of the kingdom. And that just seems extreme, doesn't it? And one of the reasons that this seems extreme is some editors of the translation seem to have softened what has happened here. It says in verse... 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers. That term, saw the nakedness, sounds like he's naked and he saw it. Anyone would read it that way, right? I mean, I get basic English sentence structure, right? That's, he's, he was naked and they saw it. Big deal. I mean, some of you are like, listen, if, if I lived by myself, I'd be naked in my house all the time. I don't want to know who you are and don't invite me over. Yeah. But, I, you know, it's like, is that that big of a deal? I didn't, put, I didn't put in my notes. Let me pull it up. Let me just read this and I'll let you connect the dots. This is Leviticus 2017. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother and sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness and he shall bear his iniquity. Now, a different translation is going to translate this. If a man has intercourse with his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness. In other parts of the Old Testament, sees their nakedness means to is means incest, is what that means. I'll let you connect the dots on what could have happened and what some of these Hebrew and Jewish scholars are saying the real sin of Ham is here. And it puts a whole nother tent to this story, doesn't it? Now I'm going to, we're doing two things here and it's important that you understand this. When we read stories like this and we attribute a meaning other than what we have historically understood it to mean, 
there are two things we need to be careful about here. Number one is we're taking what Hebrew scholars say, not what Scripture says. Okay? We're taking their interpretation, which means we take it with a grain of salt. The second thing we're doing is we are reading a separate part of Scripture and we're looking at that translation and we're saying, this looks very similar. So again, we have to be very careful when we read Scripture this way. Uh, This is one of the ways we can easily slip into what we call eisegesis. In other words, we make it say what we want it to say. And that is a deadly way to read Scripture. But I'm telling you, there is some evidence that this is the actual understanding of this story. And this is why this is such a severe curse and judgment. All right? I'm going to leave that with you there. Okay? Let's come back. Everybody's quiet. I'm like, what did we? This is not good news. This is, Scott said this was going to be good news. This is not good news. All right. So I t- I'm telling you this. Because you should know. And it does make this story make more sense. And we less look at Noah like, Noah, you're a real jerk. You know what? You got to be old and you got to be a real jerk. So, And it becomes more... The other indicators are Noah was drunk during this time and yet he woke up and he knew what Ham had done to him when he woke up. How did he know? How would he have known? He walked in and saw him and left and told his brothers. And his brothers came in and put a blanket over. How would he have known? So there are some other indicators that seem to say that is what happened. It's not pleasant. But you should know that that's one of the many, what many people believe that actually means. All right. Now, why is that important? And why am I sharing this with you? Today is a transitional piece from what has happened with Adam to what now is where we are today. So this chapter is a transition to us today, okay? So if you leave here today and go, man, that sermon was not really all that great. I I hear you. And um, just know it's a transition. We're going to hit it hard again next week, all right? And don't listen to Scott. Um, No, that's that's what Leslie said. I'm not saying that. Listen to Scott. He's a good guy. Uh, so Noah's curse and blessings, these are what we what ends up happening as a result of this. Let me back up one. Remember, Noah's curse and blessing to his sons will set the tone for the development of the ancient Middle East, which continues today. Noah's curse and blessings. Shem would be blessed. Japheth would be blessed through Shem because he would be, he would be, uh, his borders would be enlarged in the tent of Shem. In other words, Shem is going to be the guy that's really, uh, you know, he's doing really well and Japheth's just going to be kind of reaping all the benefit of what's doing well for him. But then Ham, Ham's offspring, not Ham himself, but Ham's offspring would be cursed and this, uh, that they would be the servant to his uncles. Canaan's uncles, Shem and Japheth, Canaan would be subservient to them. In fact, goes on to say he would serve their servants. I mean, like not even serve them. He would serve their servants. So that's the curse in which we see. So here's a question. I'm going to skip the next question because I was going to have you discuss was Noah too harsh on Ham? We're not going to, we're not going to hit that one based. We're not going to hit that one. That could be a weird conversation. Uh, and you might be next to a guest, and who knows what will happen. Again, they'll never come back. All right. So here's the question I do want you to take a few minutes. Because if we gloss over this, I think we miss the gravity of what's happening both with Adam and with Noah. What are the implications of Adam's and Noah's sin? This is where I want you to get into groups, get next to people. I want you to dig deep. I want you to think outside the box. I don't want you to say they're separated from God. Okay, we covered it. That one's covered. I want you to go deeper than that. I want you to think about the things that people would disagree on. I, you know, uh, consider what are the implications of Adam's and Noah's sins based on everything we've talked about in the last 10 weeks. All right? I'm going to give you a couple minutes to do that. Go ahead.
What are the implications of Adam and Noah's sins? Thinking deeper outside the box, Mike? Yes, yes. So sin doesn't just affect you, it affects others. I I think that's a great point. Whenever we read in Scripture about the sins of the Father or about generational curses, I believe that is really what it is. It is the fact that there are some things and some ways that we can hurt people in such a way that it goes from child, sometimes multiple generations. It it is um, an abusive father has an abusive son who becomes a father who abuses his son who becomes an abusive father and on down the road those sins have an ability to pass down from generation to generation yeah they can have really long far-reaching um consequences good 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 all right what else Addressed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that in some ways felt like a little bit of a sin by omission, right? By not being there. Now, what we got to was we're accountable for both. Yeah, okay. I don't like where this is going. All right. (laughs) Keep going. Are you done? Yeah. (laughs) All yours now. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Uh, talking about the sins of omission and commission have the same results. Yeah. That's very good. That's, I do like where that went, actually. Um, okay. That's good. That's good. I, I, I say jokingly because I w- we, we, we have ways of mentally and emotionally manipulating ourselves to think that sins of omission are not that big a deal. I should have done that, but you know, but I didn't really do anything bad. I probably should have done that, but they have, they both have those consequences. That's very good. What else? Oh, all right. Go ahead, Danny. I'll come back to you in a minute, Caitlin. Right. But because of his pursuit of drunkenness, he became so drunk that he could not prevent anything. Whatever, whatever we decide, you know, did. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but that's where Noah's sin was. He became so drunk that he could not prevent any yeah. indications of his drunkenness. Yeah, you, your sin, maybe, maybe could we wrap that up in saying your sin can have... Um, unforeseen consequences in the ways that you um, finish your capacity to guard against them. I mean, I guess, uh, yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes the the consequences of our sin aren't just like judgment, but like things that sets into motion things that happen. I I I often read this that you know, let's say let's say the most salacious interpretation of Ham's sin, because there's two sins there, right? There, there's Noah's sin, and then there's Ham's sin. So there's two different sins. And, and so, I, you know, when I look at that, um, it, it strikes me that's probably not the first time he got drunk, right? Um, and it's probably not his only sin, based on what we know about humanity. And that could have, not, that does not mean that our parents are responsible for, for all our sins, but that could have led to the place where Ham was, depending on what else was going on in Noah's life and other ways Noah was fallen. Because Noah wasn't perfect like Christ. And, you know, we can assume that Noah had other sins too. But good. Wait, no, Caitlin, I said, I'll come right back to you. I told say, Caitlin, go to her next. Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah, that's one of my takeaways as well. It, this did, did not surprise God that Noah himself was going to sin. Yes. Yes, good. Uh, I'll say so, I'll get you in just a minute. Very good point, yes. So that is his sin. Right. And a consequence of his sin was drunkenness. Um, but if Ham went in and did the thing that we think that, that the, did the thing. Right, did the thing, gotcha. If he did the thing. Did the um, thing, yeah. That is 100 million percent on Ham. And I don't care like if Noah was drunk or not. Because, um, you know... While Noah, his sin is that he was putting alcohol before God, but I just I would be careful not to place the whole like, well, this is what happens when you get drunk. I would be careful in that because yeah, that's a good caution, a good caution. Because Ham's one hundred percent responsible for Ham, and um, and Noah's one hundred percent responsible for Noah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I no, and that, and I don't think that's where that comment was going. I think you, somebody could really, you know, make that so squirrely to make it say that. But that, but the the point being, as a minor broad, uh, minor impact of sin, which is not always minor, um, would be that your sin could keep could set you in. Um, a place where you are going to be hurt with other consequences. That was not, but you're right. It is an, it is an important caution. Um, Noah's, Ham is ultimately responsible for Ham. Noah is ultimately responsible for Noah. That's, that's, a good, that's a good caution. All right, somebody just raise their hand here, but hang on a second, Stacey. Okay. In other words, we you can understand how they could get to this place. To, which I would I would use that in the sense of if we say, well, they were much worse than ours. That's where that context would matter. Is if we say if we begin to rationalize someone's sins worse than someone else's sin, then we all come to the choices that we make not always from our own, completely our own responsibility. Okay, next next thought you had? Um, there are 
Yes. So some of the same Hebrew scholars that believe that Ham's um, sin was laying with Noah when Noah was drunk believe that um, the the instance of them walking backwards and covering Noah could have been a couple of things. One is what you're saying. This is symbolically a covering of his shame and sin, just as Adam was covered. The other is that in order to soften the story of, um, you know, one of the birth fathers of the world, um, that this was later added by an editor reading this. Now, I'm always hesitant for those expect those explanations, and those are hard. And you have to be careful with those explanations to say, uh, you know, an author of the Bible changed the story to make it more palatable. You get in some really slippery places when you do that. However, if you take the Genesis 1 through 11 more symbolically, then, then it's easy to go there and say this story is about grievous sin and then the covering of that shame. Um, and, but the problem is the people who are doing the, the covering in that regard would be his sons and not God himself. So that would create a bit of a sticky subject for that interpretation. But, but yet it would be hard to deny there's not some, some very real symbolism of the covering of, of shame, covering of shame. All right, we're running out of time. Somebody over here had their hand raised first. Or, oh, well, all right. Um, okay, last one. Ken? Yeah, good question. Yeah, it's their fault. I mean, is my understanding. That's the way I read it. Huh? They, um, where were the wives? Uh, who knows? Probably doing all the work of these guys who are standing around not doing anything, right? Um, the uh, Noah. So that is another troubling part of this. Unless, unless the kind of orthodox understanding of God did not speak to him again. That separation, while we may feel more comfort with that separation than they would have, um, that in and of itself would have been enough, if that is, in fact, the, the true reading. And I think that, that because God does not ignore sin... Um, I think that is likely an, an accurate reading. His punishment was his separation, and they got. We do not hear of God speaking to him again. So that's that would be that's that's my understanding as I read this. All right, okay, all right. I'm going to wrap this up because we're supposed to have good news, and and um, I want to do this. And this is also we have to complete the thought that we began. Uh, Adam was the first Adam. Noah was the next Adam. Jesus was the last Adam. Okay? So the way this all gets wrapped up, nice and neatly for us today, that was not wrapped up for them when all these events were happening, is the fact that we see God working in in 
in similar but yet still unique ways with each of these three men. And there are only three men that we see as Adam figures in all of Scripture. It is Adam, it is Noah, and it is Jesus. Each one marks a significant change in the way we have a relationship with God. We were created with Adam. Noah is a fresh start. Jesus is the final fresh start for all of humanity. And Romans 5, 12 through 14 even draws the direct... Uh, Paul does a lot of work on this. He draws the direct correlation between the two. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Talking about Jesus, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And for, and uh, preceding verses of that same chapter, verse 20 says, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Now, I wanted to close with that because this this story of Noah has troubled me my entire life. <laughs> because Noah is the hope for all humanity. Noah is righteous and finds favor in the eyes of God. Noah builds the ark just like God says. Noah assembles the animals just like God says. Noah puts them all in the ark just like God says. Noah rides out the flood just like God says for him to do. God is working. There is no other person other than Adam in the history of all of Scripture that has as much of God right there next to you walking this path, doing all this with you, you seeing these amazing things that God is doing. And yet, Noah doesn't seem to finish well. It's always struggled me. Uh, I've always struggled with that. It's always puzzled me. Interestingly enough, a lot of my pastor friends, when they get together, one thing we notice is lots, lots of times pastors don't finish well. In fact, we read about lots of them. Um, in which they have long, rich, impacting ministries, and then somewhere towards the end of their life, great fall happens. It is troubling. It is the weight and the consequence of sin. However, we cannot live our lives trying not to sin. Now, there's a part of that. We have to live our lives in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ. We have to recognize his grace and his love is what covers us. We have to remember Jesus died on the cross so we would not live lives of shame. And we have to live our lives looking for God, not trying to appease God. Those are very different ways of living life. Depending on your tradition, you've grown up in one of those two ways. I'm either looking for God, I want to grab hold of him with two hands, or I'm just trying to appease him so he's not mad at me and he's not coming down on me. So as we look at this, the last thing I would have you remember is that God still rescues every single day. And I don't mean he rescues you till the next time. I mean full and complete eternal rescue. That is the good news of Jesus Christ as the last Adam. Now we're going to piece kind of the rest of this puzzle together in the next couple of weeks. Um, and then we're going to be done with Genesis 1 through 11. Um, I do want us to recognize that much of this story, whether Noah was a real person or not, and the fact that um, every culture, every ancient culture that we know of has a flood story leads me to believe Noah was likely a real person. Um, if he's not, that does not in my mind nor my faith change that God is real or what God is doing. All right. Uh, but 
whether Noah is real or not, it is showing us what God intends to do with our lives that is fulfilled in Christ. Uh, we have the benefit of looking back over the whole story in which they did not have that benefit. God still rescues every single day. The rescue is eternal. All right? Uh, for next week, read Genesis 10. We're going to be talking about Nimrod. Uh, it actually is, I'm really excited about it. It's going to be a great talk together. You want to be here. And um, also, if a couple of you are able to help move some uh, stuff, we only need a couple, really. Um, from some of the kids' rooms. We just need some of the bigger pieces. Um, bigger pieces of furniture moved from the preschool class to the K-1 class. And uh, you're going to come in, parents, next week, and you're going to see some completely redone rooms. And um, the nursery, one of the things, the nursery is going to be getting a much bigger room. So I know they'll be excited about that. All right. Okay. Good discussion. I'll be up front. If anybody wants to talk after, I'm glad you're here. I look forward to seeing you next week. And Um, Be sure and grab your kids when we're done because we're really late today. All right. Father, thank you for uh, the grace that you extended to Noah, for the grace that you extended to Ham, Shem, Japheth, to us. I thank you that we have the ability at this point of the story to look back and see the whole story, even if it's not 100% complete yet. Father, I pray that we would be a people that see sin as it is, a terrible thing that not only separates from you, but separates us from the beautiful life you created us for. I pray that you would also help us to see judgment in the way that you see it, something that is reserved for you, yet something that we are always cautioning against because it always leads to uncreation and chaos. I pray for those of us in this room and As we talked a little bit about generational sin, maybe they're struggling with generational sin. Yet you can break the back of any sin, no matter what it is. And I pray that for those that may be struggling with that which has been placed on them by someone else, that they would be able to break free from that. And they would be able to live their lives in the full freedom of knowing you. Not walking in shame, but walking as your son or daughter. And Father, I pray that we as a church would welcome Anyone that would walk in our door recognizing that any one of them is just like us. We are broken and we are in need of a Savior. And you love them as much as you love us. Father, we thank you for that love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.